Amen. That's how we come. That's really the only way uh, we can come, unless we want to try and put up a front, and we don't want to do that. And so, thanks for that reminder. Uh, I invite you to open up your Bible to John chapter 7. We've been working our way through John's Gospel. My name is Jeremy, and I get to be one of the pastors here, and it's a great privilege uh, for me and for Pastor Stan as well, I know. And so, turn to John chapter 7. We're right at the very end. Last week we left off in John 7, verse 52, and I love preaching the Word of God, and I'm going to do that here in a moment, but we're going to do something a little more teaching-like to get things started this morning. I like teaching as well. Maybe teaching's a little bit different than preaching. I'm going to start with some teaching and move into some preaching here in a little bit, because we want to answer and try to ask some important questions that I think might come up as you open up your Bible whatever translation you might have, and take note of some notes that you see in the passage that we're going to look at today. So we're going to look at the passage here in a moment, but first some teaching as we get at some important questions. And those questions are these. Is the Bible really the Word of God? Second, can we trust the reliability of Scripture And another question that's really important for us to ask is, how did we get the 66 books that are contained in what we have here in our Bible? Really important questions. We want to teach through some of that, and you're going to see how it applies to the passage that we look at here today. In the Evangelical Free Church, we have 10 articles that kind of make up, here's what we believe. Here's what unites us together as this denomination called Evangelical Free Churches of America. And this is a pretty standard evangelical uh, statement on what we believe about the Bible. So here, let me just read it in English, not Spanish. Here's what it says. We believe that God has spoken in the Scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired Word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writing. The complete revelation of His will for salvation and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. I love that statement. That's a great summary of what we believe about the Bible. And that is why we as a church want to be grounded in the Bible in everything that we do. I want my preaching to flow right from the text of Scripture. The kids who were in Sunday school uh, just now were being taught the Word of God. We have Awana because it's an opportunity, a program for our kids to memorize the Word of God and hide that in their hearts. We do youth group the way we do youth group because we want kids to know the Word of God. So we believe the Bible is the authoritative, inspired, inerrant Word of God. I could spend weeks just walking us through what we mean by all of these things, and it would probably be fun, for me at least, and maybe for you as well. But I want to focus on one sentence here. The one sentence I want to focus on is that the Bible is without error in the original writings. Now, you know that, for example, John is is the, the book we're looking at now. Paul wrote many books in the New Testament. You know that those guys didn't sit down with their MacBook and start typing out in English the words of Scripture, right? So, so the Old Testament Scriptures were written in Hebrew, 
and the New Testament scriptures written in Greek. And so we know that the Bibles that we hold, whether your Bible is in Spanish or in English, is a translation of the original writings of scripture, right? So John wrote down exactly what God, word for word, we believe in the verbal inspiration of Scripture. So not just that, that John was just feeling really inspired that day and then wrote some really good stuff, but that the very words that God intended each of the authors to write are the words that they wrote, word for word, without, without getting, getting rid of that author's personality and experience and unique writing style. Okay? So that's what we believe about how the Scriptures came to be. But John, being a, a person who, in John's case, you know, lived 2,000 years ago, we don't have an original manuscript left. There's no ancient writings where we have any sort of full manuscript uh, uh, that somebody originally wrote that's 2,000 years old. It's just not realistic to expect that. So we don't have the complete Gospel of John written in the hand of John on whatever he would have written that on. We don't have one of those. But can we trust then what we have is the question, right? What we do have are copies of manuscripts that scribes would meticulously copy. So again, no copy machine either. And so as things were written... They would be then copied by scribes whose job it was to make sure they copied every little bit of what was originally written. And you might think often of a game of telephone, you know, uh, like where, where something can kind of get garbled up as that's the way some skeptics look at it. That, that's like, well, John wrote something, somebody copied it, somebody copied it, somebody copied it. Pretty soon it's all messed up and it's not even what John said at the beginning. That's not the way it works. Okay? Here's the way it works. Let me give you a quick illustration. Some of the middle school students said you'd come and help me, so please do that right now. Come on up. If you're a middle school student who said you'd help me, you're going to come up here. Excellent. I even had a request from one of their parents to embarrass them, and I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to embarrass you. Um, excellent. Yeah, on this step right here would be a perfect spot, and you can turn and face everybody. Okay? And so if, if, if I was John, and I wrote down what, what the Holy Spirit had intended for me to write down, word for word, and I wanted that to be then distributed to other people, it's not that I would just have like one person, like my daughter. I, I trust my daughter, and so she's going to write that down and then pass it on to somebody else. Instead, a number of scribes would have copied down what John wrote. So you guys all, you can pretend you're writing. I didn't tell you you'd have to act. This is, you're doing a great job, though. Excellent. Okay? So, so they're all writing down word for word what had been passed on to them. And then, maybe you would have even more than this, right? And then each one of them might have another layer of scribes that would then copy their copy, right? And, and so it would keep going. Like if we started going back in the sanctuary, pretty soon we'd have, we'd have just uh, hundreds of copies of manuscripts of what John had written, right? And here's what we know. Um, you guys are still writing. It's a long book, right? Uh, right? Uh, excellent. Um, I feel like you guys might start to feel awkward in a little bit. Why don't you go ahead and sit down? Uh, you did a great job. Um, so they're doing that. I'm going to keep talking as though they're kind of still here, right? As they're making those copies, 
and other people are copying their copies, making sure that they're writing down word for word what these guys wrote, you can see how it would be advantageous for us to have multiple copies so that if only fragments survive of each of them, we can kind of put them together. And when this manuscript and this manuscript and this manuscript all match each other, we can have great confidence that they copied what was actually written, right? Because they're not just copies of copies. It's, it's a number of people horizontally, and then it goes back this way as well. So let me, let me just show you... Um, a couple, of, uh, a couple of reasons we can trust the reliability of God's word, just two, okay? One is, if we have a big number of manuscripts, a large number of manuscripts, that would be really helpful so that we can compare and realize, oh, these are all matching up, right? So a large number of manuscripts is good. And the other thing that's good to help trust the reliability of what we have written is a small gap of time between the original and the earliest manuscripts that still survive. Does that make sense? So if we were kind of going back in the sanctuary, and we don't have any of what John wrote, but we have some stuff from like row two here, because row two is always row one, because nobody sits in row one, right? So if we have some from row two right here, those are going to be more reliable and more sure to be what John actually wrote than what we'd have from the people in the back. I'm not saying you people in the back aren't reliable. I'm just saying you want earlier stuff, right? So if there's a shorter time gap between when it was written and when we have a copy from, that's good, okay? So the question is, can we trust then that what John or Paul or whatever New Testament author wrote is actually what we have now, what's been translated into English, We need to look at those two things. Do we have a lot of manuscripts? And what was the time gap between when it was written and when we have the earliest manuscripts from? Let me put a little chart up because I'm nerdy like that. Okay, Chart will help, I think, help us see this. At the very top, you see the New Testament. Okay, These are other ancient writings that we have some sort of record of and then have been translated and copied and all that stuff. What you want on a chart like this then is you want a big long orange line because that orange line represents the number of manuscripts, okay? And you see there how the New Testament compares to other ancient writings, okay? So ancient writings like those from Homer, we have 643 manuscripts available to kind of compare with each other. New Testament, 5,686, okay? Time gap. You want that to be really short, remember, because it's, it's easier to, to trust those that were written soon after the original, copied soon after the original. And there, you see, you want the line to be short. New Testament, we have copies of the manuscript from within 25 years of the original writing. When you get to Homer, it takes 500 years. There's a 500-year gap between when he wrote and the earliest manuscripts that we have available. Does that make sense? So, so those kinds of things are what give us lots of confidence that what we have now, 2,000 years later, translated into English right here, is actually the Word of God. Now, are there differences between like the NIV and the ESV and that kind of thing? Well, of course there are, because anytime you translate things from one language to another, you could choose a number of different words. And, and so, so translations are a little bit different, but in their core meaning... What we have is the very Word of God. And so, we have great confidence in that. But then you get to spots in your Bible where you might be caused to scratch your head and say, oh, can I have confidence? Because if you look in your Bible, 
at John chapter 7, verse 53. Last week we ended in verse 52, and in most of your Bibles, it depends again on the translation how they do it. They might have parentheses around this whole section that we're going to look at today. There might be a line in your Bible with a note. There might be a footnote, right? So, so I don't know which translation you have today, but in all translations except for the King James Version and the New King James Version, and some people that are like, hey, King James is the only version because the other people try and skip stuff. Um, the King James Version was translated in 1611, and since 1611, we have found earlier and more reliable manuscripts, right? And so, 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 so we've, the new modern translations, anything after kind of King James, New King James, uh, takes into account the earlier and more reliable manuscripts that have been found since 1611. Okay, does that make sense? So if you have the King James Version, there will be no note like this in there because the manuscripts they had available at the time that was translated all had this just kind of written in. But, all right, I'm, I'm teaching, and I'm not, I feel like I need a whiteboard in order for everybody to keep up. But it looks like I've got some head nods, so I'm going to keep going. Here's what your Bible will say, though. Say something like this. The earliest manuscripts do not contain John 7.53 through 8.11. Okay? Earliest manuscripts don't have this section in there. So, what do we, what do we make of that? Why are we going to look at it anyway on this Sunday morning? Here's, here's what we can be pretty confident of as you look at this section. This section sometimes shows up in different spots in the book of John when they look at manuscripts. Often it doesn't show up at all. In some manuscripts, they've found it even showing up in the Gospel of Luke. Okay? And so, so this is one section where they can't have, those who translate it, those who do all this manuscript textual criticism kind of stuff, they haven't been able to say with 100% confidence that when John wrote the Gospel, he included this. Because the earliest manuscripts, which are more reliable, didn't have that. So somewhere along the line, you know, maybe back in like the middle of the sanctuary, somebody had heard this story and, and maybe it had been written down and had been passed on orally. And so they said, this would fit well right here. And so they maybe just inserted that. So we have no reason to believe that what we're going to read didn't happen. We, we have every reason to believe that this did really happen. But there's a number of reasons that we have to believe that John didn't write it and put it in this very spot in this gospel. Does that make sense? Okay. So we're going to look at it anyway because we believe, well, it really happened. And we don't have 100% certainty that John didn't put it in this spot. But he uses some language that John doesn't use anywhere else in the, in the gospel. But here's the thing. Anytime we have variants like that, okay, like, like, Oh, this says this, but this says this. This one has it here, and this one doesn't have it here. There are going to be those minor differences all throughout Scripture. This is probably one of the most major ones that we have, and I didn't want to ignore that, uh, and so that's why I did some of teaching like this. But we're going to pay attention to it because I think that, for me at least, this doesn't cause me to be less confident in the reliability of Scripture. This actually causes me to be more confident that our translators have the honesty to kind of say before us, hey, listen, as we look at what evidence we have, we can't tell you with 100% certainty that John wrote this and put this right here. So we're just going to, we're going to tell you that. We're going to include that, but we're going to be upfront and honest with you about that. Does that make sense? So that's what's happening here. 
Now, there's no new doctrine that's taught here. There's nothing that, that, man, this changes everything or anything like that that's written in this passage. This is a great story of something that likely really took place. And so we want to take a look at it. We're going to do that for a short time. And then I'm going to take us to other scripture that teaches some of the same stuff. Okay? That's what our plan is for today. So, thus ends my teaching, and now I get to preach. Let's go ahead and stand if you're able. I'll pray, and then we'll read from John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Father, I just thank you that you were faithful to give us your word, your authoritative, inerrant, inspired word, that though written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years on three different continents, we can have such great confidence in your word, in the reliability of what we have, that we, we, we believe that this is the very word of God. And so we're so thankful for that. We're thankful for the way that you uh, caused people throughout church history to do the hard work of preserving and copying and translating your word so that we could have it today. We know people died for that. People were killed because even though it was outlawed, they continued to make copies of scripture. God, I thank you that though the flowers fade and the grass withers, your word stands forever. Help us to trust in what we see in your word. But God, more more than anything, help us to trust in you. I pray that our reading of God's word would help us uh, to be people that are molded by it, that we might be faithful disciples of Jesus. We trust you. Thank you for giving us your word, and I pray that you would be at work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit now. In Jesus' name, amen. John 7, 53 through 8, 11 says this, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So, what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Amen. You can be seated. Now, I ran through that part. Some of you, I know, I, I know, like the stuff I was just sharing earlier as I was teaching. Not super interesting to you, maybe not troubling, maybe not, maybe not, like, just like, okay, let's get through that and let's get to the story. For others of you, you need to let that churn a little bit, you need to wrestle with that a little bit, maybe, maybe you want to talk a little more about that, I'm certainly open to that throughout the week, Pastor Stan would be as well, kind of putting him on the spot, but I'm just, yeah, he would be, all right, he just shook his head, so we're good, all right, so 
I'm sorry, I made the font a little bit bigger so we could see it better, and I realized that I made it go off the end of the screen. So I'm sorry about that. But if you've got a Bible with you, it's in there as well. Okay. All right, so here's what we're going to do. Inside your bulletin, there is a spot for you to take uh, notes um, and, and then also a life group guide or application guide. If you're not in a life group, you can still work on your own on just applying what we're reading in the Word of God today. So just a little bit of context. It begins in John 7, 53 with a note about where this is taking place. Again, the setting. Each of them goes to his own house. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. This is not abnormal for Jesus to separate himself from everybody else. It's also not abnormal for Jesus to go down into the temple and do some teaching. That's what we saw him just doing earlier in chapter 7. And when Jesus teaches, generally, people want to show up and listen. He usually attracts large crowds as he teaches. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. Now, he's doing this in the temple, so our assumption is that the people that Jesus is teaching are Jewish for the most part, right? People that have come to know the law of God and are seeking to obey and live by the law of God. That's the people Jesus is talking to here. Then we get to verse 3, where we're told that the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst of those that were gathered there to hear Jesus teaching. Jesus is there, he's teaching, and you can picture this, can't you? That, that scribes and Pharisees, some of the leaders there in Jerusalem and in the temple, are taking this woman who was caught in the act of adultery, and they bring her and set her there in the midst of these people. They found a lawbreaker. If you know the Ten Commandments, the Seventh Commandment, you shall not commit adultery. You may also know, and these people surely would have known, that in the book of Leviticus, there's a little more detail spelled out. In Leviticus, it says this, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. That's Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. And so, here's what these teachers do. They said to Jesus, teacher, This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Now this is the first time we're going to notice that these people are practicing what I'm going to call selective condemnation. Right? Who is guilty of sin here? Two people. Right? A man and a woman. Who did they bring before all these people to kind of shame her, embarrass her, put her right in the midst of this one person, the woman? Okay? So who is deserving of condemnation of some sort, right? They've sinned, they've broken the law, but they're selective in their condemnation. They take the woman and kind of let the man go, right? So they're bringing her here in front of these people, and they're asking Jesus the question. They're asking, here's what our law says, what do you say? Now, we're going to be told here in verse 6 that they're doing it to test him. See that in verse 6? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. See, the trap here was this. The trap was, yes, Jewish law said this is the consequence of this type of sin. Should be killed. But the ruling had been, now that the Romans were were in charge, 
the Romans had said, you cannot execute people, we're going to take care of that. And so if Jesus says, well, if our law says it, then let's do it. Let's, let's, let's make sure she suffers the consequence for her sin. Then he would have been in trouble with Rome. If he says no, then he would have been in trouble with the Jewish people because they'd say, well, aren't you a rabbi? Aren't you going to even follow our own law? So you see how they were trying to test him or trap him in this? That's what's going on there. So really, it doesn't seem like they're that uh, concerned with the, the sin of this man and this woman, only the woman being there. It's more like she's kind of a pawn in their whole game to try and trap Jesus. This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. So what's Jesus going to do? What's Jesus going to say? He's going to correct those who are practicing selective condemnation here. Look at verses, the rest of verse 6 into verse 9. The end of verse 6 tells us this, that Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, you may have heard sermons on this before uh, where, where they spend all sorts of time talking about what Jesus wrote on the ground. This isn't going to be one of those sermons because you know what? The author doesn't tell us what Jesus wrote on the ground. I don't know what Jesus wrote on the ground. If the author didn't write it because the Holy Spirit didn't inspire them to write it, it must not be important for us to know what Jesus wrote on the ground. So Jesus bent down and wrote something on the ground. More importantly, it seems, Jesus says something. Verse 7 says this, And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. These Men who are humiliating this woman and practicing selective condemnation are corrected by Jesus when he says to them, let the one of you who hasn't sinned throw the first stone. And then it tells us that once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. So two times that he's doing this, again, not telling us what he wrote. We're not going to speculate about that. But then verse 9 says this, and again, it gets cut off, and I'm sorry about that, but in my Bible, it's not cut off. That's why you got to bring your own Bible. A pastor might mess up the PowerPoint. Verse 9, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Why did they leave? Not because of what Jesus wrote. That's why I'm not very concerned about what Jesus wrote. It's when they heard it. What did Jesus say? Well, that's recorded for us. What Jesus said is, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And their response, one by one, starting with the older ones, setting an example, everybody walks away. Till who is left? Just Jesus and the woman. Just a quick note, there is one in that crowd who has never sinned, right? And it's not the woman. Was she deserving of condemnation of some sort? Indeed, she had sinned, but Jesus now is alone standing with that woman. 
Well, Jesus, I mean, he's, he, he would be just in condemning her, right? Every one of those other guys who walked away, they were all sinners. And Jesus said, if you're, if you're not a sinner, you can cast the first stone. They all walk away. Now there's only one left. And this one is without sin, Jesus. He would have been just in casting a stone, in bringing about real condemnation, right? Is that what he's going to do? Verse 10 and 11. Jesus stood up and said to her, I wonder if she had even lifted her head at all yet. You wonder that? You wonder what this lady looked like being humiliated, being used as a pawn in front of all these people? I wonder if her head was down at the ground, staring at the dust, not even paying attention to what Jesus might have been writing, maybe hearing what Jesus was saying, but a shame caught in the act. But then Jesus stands up, just the two of them now, and he says to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? I wonder if she maybe looked up now, noticing that all of these men who had just a moment ago said, doesn't she deserve the death sentence? None of them are there anymore. It's just her and Jesus. He says, where are they at? Has no one condemned you? Looking around, we assume, notices nobody's left there and says, no one, Lord. None who had brought her for condemnation are now standing there to condemn her. What is Jesus going to say? Verse 11, Then Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Oh, what it would have been like to hear those words. This woman buried in guilt, suffering with shame, knowing that her life was hanging by a thread, gets to hear the words from Jesus, neither do I condemn you. And then hearing these words, go and from now on sin no more. Jesus isn't just shrugging off her act of adultery like it's not a big deal. No, he acknowledges that it's sin, but Jesus is choosing in his mercy to not condemn her. Would he have been just in condemning her? Yes. In his mercy, though, Jesus does not condemn. Neither do I condemn you, but nor does he make light of her sin. He says, go and from now on sin no more, because she was going back home. She had to go back to her husband, who maybe knew nothing of what had just happened, but he was going to know soon because it all happened in the temple. She was going to go back to real hurt, to real pain, to real temptation, to go back to that other relationship. And so Jesus says to her, go, and from now on, sin no more. But first, neither do I condemn you. See how the mercy comes first and then the command or the call to holiness comes after that? I think that's important to notice. 
couple of points of application. I want to look at a couple of other passages of Scripture as we do that. First, we could ask ourselves this question. Do we practice selective condemnation? I mean, we can always get down on the Pharisees because they're always screwing up. But we could also look at ourselves and wonder, do we sometimes practice selective condemnation? And I think we'd all have to admit, yeah, that's the case. It's easy to be condemning to those who engage in homosexual immorality, but maybe not those who engage in heterosexual immorality. Like, she's guilty, but he's not. Like, they're guilty, but I'm not. It's easy to point the finger. We probably also need to hear Jesus' correction. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, does this mean we never point out sin in our brothers and sisters? We're going to talk about that in your life group this week. We've got some other scripture for you to look at. Okay, I don't think it means that. But I think we need to be careful that we don't quickly jump to practicing selective condemnation. Another question we, should, we could ask is this. Is Jesus saying sin isn't a big deal? And I already answered that question. I don't think at all that Jesus is saying that sin isn't a big deal. We look in the rest of Scripture, we see that sin is a big deal, right? Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death. Here's here's what sin earns you. Death. It's not just that this woman and the man who, who didn't show up deserve death. It's that all of us who are sinners deserve death. The wages of sin is death. We're also told this in 1 Peter 2.24 that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Was the, is there a price that needs to be paid for sin? Yes, indeed there is. Right? That's why we can sing our sins, they are many. We're not going to make light of sin. We, we call sin, sin when we see it in ourselves, first of all. Our sins are many, and there was a price to be paid for sin, and Jesus came to pay that price, bearing our sins in his body on the tree. And so Jesus is not saying, and Scripture certainly does not say that sin is not a big deal. Sin is a big deal. But this, we're not condemned. I ask you this question, I answer it there for you too, okay? Are you and I sinners? Yes. Is our sin punishable by death? Yes. So what hope do we have? Jesus. The same Jesus who to this woman who had sinned and who did indeed deserve death. Jesus who said to this woman, neither do I condemn you. That's our hope too. Our only hope is not that we can kind of try and earn his trust back. Well, like, like we're a kid who's, who's messed up and has to earn back the trust of mom and dad. That's not how it works with the God who is holy and perfect. And we who have sinned and rebelled against him time and time again. We don't get to kind of earn his trust back. No, we need the son to look upon us and say, neither do I condemn you. Our only hope is Jesus. That's why 
Paul can rejoice in Romans 8.1 when he says this, There is therefore now no condemnation. And he doesn't just say that. He doesn't say there's no condemnation because of Christ Jesus. That is the truth. But it's not that just because Jesus came and lived and died in our place that he took on everybody's sin so that everybody, no matter what you believe about anything, is now no longer condemned. No. It's for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's for those who have laid themselves before him, who have humbled themselves, recognizing their sinfulness, trusting in Jesus as the sole Savior, the only one who can save them from their sins. It's only us who can with confidence know that there is no longer any condemnation. It's us who are in Christ Jesus. But we also know, if you read the rest of Romans 8, or a number of people in the church I know have memorized this entire chapter over time, you would get on a little bit further in Romans chapter 8 and read verse 13, saying, For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. See, in Romans 8, you don't only have, you have the beginning, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but you also have, repeated throughout Romans, this idea that if you have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, if God has been merciful to you, if you've been forgiven, if you've not been condemned, even though you deserve it, that changes the way you live. You don't live any longer in the flesh, doing whatever your own body tells you to do. That's not how we live anymore. We have the Holy Spirit now dwelling in us, so we live not by the flesh, but by the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body, the stuff that we used to just want to do, and we did it. The ways we used to think, and we thought it. We now, by the Holy Spirit in us, put that to death. And so we hear, in many ways, in Romans chapter 8, Neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more, right? So we hear that throughout Scripture. I'm so grateful for Jesus. Don't you think this woman's grateful for Jesus? She got caught in the act of adultery. Was that the only sin she had ever committed? Maybe it wasn't even the first time she had committed that sin, right? We start listing off our sins. Oh, our sins, they are many. But His mercy is more. If we were to stand before God, the holy and perfect judge, and all we had was our own, like, I'm going to defend myself here. That's not going to go well for you. But an attorney has been appointed for us, one who will stand between us, one who is our advocate, one who would present to the Father not our own dirty record, but his own perfectly spotless, blameless, clean record of perfect righteousness. And he presents that before the Father. That's, that's our hope. That we're not condemned, not because we've started doing a lot better and we're working really hard at it. We're not condemned because Jesus took the condemnation that we deserve. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He became sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God, right? That's our hope. And so we're going to end by singing a song about that hope that we have, that it's His love that defends us. That we're not going to kind of get defensive about our sin and try to talk people out of the fact like, oh no, I haven't sinned, I'm not as bad as you think I am. Oh yeah, you are, oh yeah, I am. We're worse than that. Our sins are many. 
but his mercy is more. We deserve condemnation, but Jesus took on the condemnation that we deserve. And it's his love then that defends us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you again that we can trust what you say in it. And I thank you again for the truth we learn in it. And I pray that though people come here from a lot of different backgrounds, that we would recognize that one thing that we all have in common is that we are great sinners. But I pray that you would, by your spirit, remind us, not just from what I just said, but maybe not even let us get it out of our minds, the fact that we deserve condemnation. But Jesus came to take that for us so that he could look us in the eye, all of us who trust in him, and say, neither do I condemn you. That we, who because of our sin have had shame, and we've been looking down at the ground, not even not even ready to look up. We who have felt the condemnation of people all around us, God, would you help us to hear clearly and loudly, or maybe gently, the voice of Jesus saying, neither do I condemn you. And that motivated by that forgiveness, motivated by your mercy and your love, that we would then go, empowered by your Spirit, to live a totally different kind of life than we once lived. We are desperately in need of your help. We are so thankful for your love. We thank you for sending Jesus to be our advocate before the Father. In his name we pray. Amen.